I said last week we could perhaps have, um, you know, report on the latest theological research. It's always a good idea to be up to date with what the academics are saying. Or we could wait for the words of some spiritual leader. See what the Archbishop of Canterbury has got to say perhaps for uh, this, uh, this week. Or we could do what the Quakers do and, and be quiet and wait for the inner light. Well, the scripture does certainly tell us to be still and know that I am God. And yet, at heart, we don't do any of those things. When we find out what God has to say to us, we look at this book. And so, what is this book? That's the question we've been trying to answer. Let's see if my... Uh, uh, I think it's disconnected itself. Never mind, I'll use the keys. Don't worry, it doesn't really matter. So what, what is the book we're talking about? Well, it's um, actually a collection of 66 different books, which we call the um, Old and New Testaments. If you look at the contents page of your Bible, you'll see them listed out there. But more to the point, of course, why does it matter? Why is this book worth studying? The last part of it was written some 1900 years ago. The earliest uh, documents go back to the, well, the mid-Bronze Age, probably several thousand years ago. Why should we bother to um, study this book at all? Why do we have it central in the things that we do in this church? And I, was, I gave you two answers last week, and I put them up here again this week. We do it firstly because it claims to be a record of God's dealing with mankind, and in particular what God is doing about saving mankind from himself. And secondly, it makes the even more remarkable claim that behind the variety of all the different human authors of the book, and there are lots of different human authors, there is in fact one divine author and the fact that the Bible was written by God himself. And uh, what, uh, what we've been doing is looking through these uh, books to try and look at what the Bible says about itself um, to see if it does indeed make these claims and as we look through to see if these claims are actually plausible, whether, it's, whether we can actually regard them as, as being true. So last week, we looked particularly into the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. And we looked at those um, headings, and I put some of the references on the slide, and I suggest you look them up now. They should go up on the, on the website, and unfortunately, I took the wrong files home last week, so last week's sermon is not yet up on the website. But it's, they should go up on the website. But um, we, we saw the, looked at these following things. We looked at the fact that God speaks and man speaks, and that fact that we speak as part of the image of God makes us so very different from every, all the other creatures that inhabit this planet. Um, we looked at the law of Moses, how it was meant to make the Jews the wisest people, and the other pe people were supposed to look on in envy and say what wise laws these people have. We looked at the different sorts of literature and we looked at the different ways of responding to it, how uh, we look at the law and the wisdom literature and uh, we, how we were supposed to meditate on, on it and study it. 
particularly Psalm 119 that we've read several parts of now is very much on that topic. And then we looked at what the prophet Amos said, and we saw that the prophet Amos, well, it starts with the words, says these are the words of Amos, so Amos is claiming to be the author of this book, but equally he says, thus says the Lord. What he says, he's claiming, are the very words of the Lord himself. So that was the Old Testament. Now we're going to go on to look at the New Testament. Um, unlike the Old Testament, which was written over a period of well over a thousand years, the New Testament was written over a relatively short period, less than a century. And what is in it? Well, again, I put on the slide what is in it. The four, there are the four Gospels, as we call them, the good news about Jesus, and they are history, historical books that tell us about the life and teaching of Jesus. They're largely historical in approach, although they all make some comments, and John's Gospel perhaps makes a bit more philosophical comment than some of the others, a theological comment, but essentially they're books of history that tell us about the, the life and teaching of Jesus. And then we have the book of Acts, which tells us what happened after Jesus uh, returned to heaven, the, the early life and spread of the church, and how it spread out over the Roman world. And then we have a, a whole raft of letters, quite a lot of letters, uh, written by Paul, written by um, Peter, and James, and John, and uh, Joel, and one, the book of Hebrews, that we don't really know who wrote it. But there are a whole lot of letters on theological and pastoral issues. And then at the end, we have Revelation, or the Apocalypse, and Apocalypsis, which means an unveiling. And uh, that, if you like, is, is kind of future history, although it's um, written in a very symbolic way. It's an unveiling of the present state and the future of the church, but not now from the perspective of the earthly historian, but from the perspective of heaven. That's what the New Testament is. Um, there were many other writings referring to Jesus, and he appears in various secular histories. Um, but why were these books chosen for the New Testament? Well, largely because the books were regarded as having apostolic authority. And um, as I said, it wasn't until the Council of Carthage in AD 397 that the final uh, list was agreed, but that's slightly misleading because most of these books were accepted as true scripture long before that. And mainly the issue was, were they either written by apostles or if not, were they written with apostolic authority and were they consistent with the apostolic teaching? They also pointed out last week what the rather surprising fact that the New Testament is written in Greek. Why is that surprising? Well, because Jesus and the apostles would have spoken in either Hebrew or Aramaic. And so when we read the words of Jesus, we're in fact already reading them in translation, um, which is why the exact wording sometimes differs from gospel to gospel. We're not actually quoting the words exactly as Jesus said them, but uh, we're reading them in translation into Greek. Um, and when it does, on one, 
very rare occasions actually quote the Aramaic. It says so, but that's what it's doing. So we're going to look now into the New Testament largely, although I'm not actually going to start in the New Testament. <coughs> and I'd like to look under these headings. Um, so first of all, we're going to look at how the Old Testament and the New Testament are linked together. Um, and then we're going to look at Jesus' own testimony to the Scriptures, particularly to the Old Testament, because those were the Scriptures he had, and what he said about it. And in a sense, that's going to be the most important part of our uh, study this morning. Um, but I am trying to work roughly in chronological order, which is roughly the order in which the books are written in the laid down in our Scripture. Not entirely so, but roughly that's the case. And so we'll go on to look at some of the letters, the purpose and the use of scripture as they're referred to in some of the letters. And we'll particularly look at what Peter has to say, whether the New Testament is scripture, which is obviously a fair question to ask, since Jesus' references obviously were only to the Old Testament scriptures. And um, then we're going to look at the final warnings that particularly as we get at the end of Revelation. So, a promise to be fulfilled. Because we looked at the Old Testament last week largely in its own terms, but there is one important thing to be added. Much of the Old Testament, as we saw, is sort of practical spiritual advice for the Jews. But all the way through the Old Testament runs this message of something being uncompleted, a promise for the future, this isn't God's final word. Now, of course, we could easily do a whole sermon just on this topic, but we won't do that. Let's just look at it, just a few, very few verses here, in fact, but just to give us the idea. And um, I'll read them out to you, but if you want to follow them in your script Bibles, I've put what I hope are the correct page numbers on the, um, on the slide there. So first of all, Genesis 3, verse 15 we looked last week at the beginning of Genesis and how it talked about God speaking to man and indeed man speaking both to God and to the creation around him. Uh, then, of course, Adam spoke a bit too, or Eve spoke a bit too long to the snake, the serpent, who, of course, is a symbol of Satan. And then in chapter 3, we find God's word, in fact, here, not to man, but to the serpent himself, to Satan himself, where he says the following, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So this, if you like, is God's declaration of war on the serpent. There's going to be war between the offspring of the woman and between the serpent, the Satan, the devil. And they're going to be in state of enmity. But there is this promise that the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent. And all the way, as we read through the Old Testament, we found, find that this um, promise is, flush, is fleshed out. Um, there's quite a lot of it in Isaiah, actually, but we'll see some of that when we um, look at the New Testament quotations from the Old Testament. So I won't refer to Isaiah. Um, instead, let's uh, just look briefly into the Psalms. 
In Psalm 110, verse 4, we find these words. This psalm is probably written by David himself. It's labeled a psalm of David, and what it says, it gives, looks as though it probably is written either by David himself or certainly about him. And it says the following, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, who on earth is Melchizedek? Well, actually, Melchizedek is a quite obscure character that we come across in Genesis and at one point had some dealings with Abraham. But the point here is that he was both priest of the Most High God and he was also king of Salem, Salem, king of the city that was later to be Jerusalem. David was the king of the Jews and had been promised that there would always be a descendant on his throne. But David was certainly not a priest. At the time, there was a functioning priesthood based on the line of Levi. And the fact that the, there was a separation between the king and the priest obviously um, made a difference, as it were, because the king had these, if you like, the um, secular power, the power of the law in, the, uh, in this world, but the priests, of course, had the spiritual authority. But David is promised here that the Lord's descendant would be both king and priest. And if you want to follow this idea up a bit more, just look in Hebrews 5 to 7, which has a lot more to say about it. I won't actually have time to do that today, but Hebrews 5 and set to 7 it expands on this idea quite a lot. And the more we read through the Old Testament, we find that this promise of a future king, of a new covenant, and a new law that is somehow better, in some sense better than the old one, comes to dominate the writings of the Old Testament uh, prophets. And we find this particularly among those books written just before the Jews were sent off to exile in Babylon, the books like Isaiah and um, Jeremiah, and even more so those books that were written after the Jews returned from Babylon, which seemed at one sense to be a fulfillment of the promises of, of God, and yet it wasn't what they'd come to expect. They found, in fact, that the reality was very different from what the promises seemed to imply, and the prophets who write post-exile have to um, deal with that issue the difference between what they expected and what they found the reality actually was. And so um, in the prophet Zechariah, who was a very much an apocalyptic prophet, a lot of the uh, images that come in Revelation actually come from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah was very much into symbols one way or another. And he says this, Zechariah 3, verses 8 and 9. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, you are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone. I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. And though he doesn't tell us here what that inscription is, later on he does. It's um, holy to the Lord. Joshua was the high priest um, 
the civil ruler was Zerubbabel, who was indeed a descendant of David. But we're told here that it's Joshua, the high priest, who is the symbol particularly of my servant, the branch. And this idea of the branch, the branch and the root of Jesse, was very much the prophet's idea of the coming king. Finally, let me remind you of the words we looked at this last week, but the two verses, the words with which the Old Testament ends, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. We always like to end on a positive note, don't we? And in a sense, the Old Testament does in that the prophet Elijah will come, and yet it, the last words are actually a curse. That if you don't listen to when the prophet comes, then the Lord would strike the land with a curse. So if you move just a few pages forward in your Bible, but some 400 years forward in time, in Matthew chapter 1, 20 to 23, and we find that the New Testament authors find themselves explicitly and consciously saying they are describing the fulfillment of all these Old Testament promises. So, as I say, just a few pages on in your Bible, but 400 years later, Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 to 23, we read the following. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus, of course, is the Greek form of Joshua. So in uh, calling him Jesus, Joshua, they are referring to Zechariah 3, verse 8. And then we get a quotation from Isaiah. Now, if you look back in Isaiah, you might find that there is some reference in this passage to um, Isaiah himself and his wife, but it's clear even when you read in Isaiah that the full fulfillment of this is something much greater, something still to come. God with us. Isaiah couldn't describe his son as God with us. There is, he might have been a sign, as it were, of God, that God is with the people, but explicitly the son God with us has a greater fulfillment to come. And what's Matthew saying? He says, well, this is it, guys. Here it comes. You know about all these Old Testament promises, and now here it is. And that brings us on to consider what Jesus himself said about the Old Testament. And if we claim to be disciples of Jesus, surely it's important to see what he had to say about the Scripture. And the answer, in fact, is quite a lot. We are told in the New Testament that Jesus taught with authority himself, not like the scribes who were always a bit tentative, 
but Jesus taught with authority and yet he was happy to acknowledge, wasn't he, the authority of the scriptures over tradition. As far as Jesus was concerned, the scriptures always trump human traditions. Maybe nothing wrong with human traditions as such, but if it comes to a conflict, then it's the scriptures that we listen to. So Mark 7, 5 to 13, we read of this uh, frank debate, shall we say, between the Pharisees and Jesus. And it says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? What did Jesus reply? He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. End of quote. And then he goes on to apply this to the Pharisees. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Then anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father and mother. The meaning seems to be that they, the, the money that he might have set aside for, to look after his aging parents would instead be paid into the temple funds. And thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you've handed down and you do many things like that. If it comes a conflict, as often there does, between the traditions of some church or other organization and what the scripture says, Jesus is saying, well, the scripture always wins, or it should do. Scripture trumps the Pharisees' traditions. The scripture trumps the traditions of the Catholic Church if they're contrary to God's word. The scripture even trumps the traditions of the Reformed churches if they're contrary to God's word. But the mainly thing that Jesus had to say about the scripture, of course, was that it pointed to himself. Luke 24, 25 to 27, he makes exactly this point. <coughs> he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Well, we don't have time to go through all the uh, Moses and all the prophets again, but um, that's what Jesus said, that they, all the scriptures point to Jesus. And here's some more things along the same line, some more specific examples. What about the law and the prophets? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not a smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
It's Matthew 5, 17, 18 from the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 4, 17 to 21. Again, goes back to Isaiah. Isaiah was really, seems to have been the New Testament writer's favorite prophet. He gets quoted as much as everybody else, I think, almost. Luke 4, 17 to 21. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Him here, so I should say, him here is Jesus himself, of course. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and as they used to in those days, he sat down to preach, to comment on the word of God. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue, it says, were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's, who's the me that the, the prophet is referring to? Who is it on whom the Spirit of the Lord has come? It's Jesus himself. And what has he come to do? To preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, release the oppressed, and to proclaim the, law, the, the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus had come to do. Isaiah said it was going to happen, but now that promise is fulfilled. Jesus clearly regarded the Old Testament as being about himself. In John chapter 5, 37 to 40, we read this. The Father who sent me has testified himself concerning me. You've never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Note here that Jesus seems to be equating the testimony of the scriptures with the testimony of the Father himself. He says, the Father who sent me and testified concerning me where is that testimony to be found? Well, it's in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And he says, well, you know, you study the scriptures because you think that through them you possess eternal life, and actually that's true, but only if you do what they say, only if you listen to them. Finally, in this section, let's say Jesus regarded scripture as definitive, John 10, 34 to, 40 to 36. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in that your law, I have said you are gods? See, quoting from the psalm there. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father sent apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? There's a lot in that verse, but I'd just like to focus on Jesus' words there about the scripture. He says the scripture cannot be broken. 
what the scripture says is going to happen will happen. We use various phrases to talk about the scripture and the inspiration of scripture and so on, but to me that is the key one. The fact that the scripture cannot be broken. I went to a conference years and years ago when I was a student and one of the speakers says, you can't argue with Paul, at least you can't at this conference. It was an IVF conference, so we weren't allowed to argue with Paul at that conference. Well, Jesus says the same thing. You're not allowed to argue with the scripture, at least in this church. You can discuss what it means, but you're not allowed to argue with it. <laughs> well, I thought in some ways I could very well stop there, but it does leave open a few questions. And the New Testament writers do go on to expand on this view of the scriptures. So I think it is worth ex examining what they've actually got to say. So let's do that. So, um, 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. You probably all know this. It's the, it's the evangelical proof text, isn't it? Um, I could have started there, but I chose not to, I think. <laughs> because we need to think about what it means. But 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. Philip writing to Timothy, his protege. Oh, it's 14, sorry. Uh, yeah, I, I actually wrote four down originally and then realized it was corrected. It is definitely 14, sorry. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what it points to, Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God, and is useful for teaching. I think there's a semicolon here. I mean, not in the Greek, of course, because it doesn't have semicolons, but I, I think that's the meaning. It's useful for teaching, and then he goes on to expand what he means by teaching a bit. Rebuking correcting and training in righteousness why so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that's what you study and train for isn't it Deborah's going to be doing a PhD so that she's qualified to teach that's what the doctor means of course it means one who is qualified to teach one who is has authority then on her own in order to speak and um, that's uh, why we study God's word so we may be equipped for every good work well I say this is the evangelical proof text but it's um, still worth looking to see what it says it tells us first of all that all scripture is breathed out by God the older translations say inspired by God but that's not actually I think what the, believe what the Greek means that inspired means breathed into but it's not actually saying that. It says God has breathed it out. And of course, the words for breath and spirit are the same in Greek. And so in other words, it's God's spirit going out into the world and, as it were, condensing on the page. God is the ultimate author, notwithstanding all these human authors that the, we know that the scripture does have. 
and we're told that all scripture is profitable. That may seem a bit of a struggle sometimes if you ever read the genealogy in Genesis 5 or maybe the, st the statistics in that you read in Numbers or in a different view perhaps you read the poems in the Song of Solomon and think how exactly do I profit from this and yet Paul tells us that all scripture is profitable and if we haven't looked at these passages then we haven't got the whole counsel of God and so you know perhaps perhaps we need to do a, se a series on Genesis 5 but I don't think I'm volunteering to do it but, um, <laughs> you know we should all scripture is profitable it tells us well how is it profitable well it's the Christian's primary weapon isn't it Ephesians 6 verse 17 Take the flat jacket of salvation and the AK-47 of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, actually, that's not quite what it says if you look it up. Um, but that's what it means. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. He's talking about the gladius, the short sword. The short sword is the assault rifle of the Roman world. It was the... Um, infantryman's standard weapon what the Roman legionnaire would do and if you were a Roman soldier it was both what kept you alive and was your primary method of attack no legionnaire would dream of going to battle without checking that his uh, sword was clean and sound and sharp that would just be stupid wouldn't it his life was going to depend on this his victory was going to depend on this so he would certainly make sure it was sharp and clean. And he'd drill and train constantly in its use. Because to do anything else was, just, was folly. If he, you would train, I guess, until it was, he almost didn't have to think about it. It was just instinctive how to use his sword in both defense and attack. So how much attention do we give to sword drill? I'm sure none of us train as much as we should do in the word of God. And notice also, he does say, Paul does say it's the sword of the spirit. In a sense, it's not our weapon, it's the spirit's weapon. Um, so often you hear in Christian circles today, people who want to say, oh, well, we don't need to study the Bible, we have the spirit, or something like, or words to that effect. Or, you know, that's, that was the word for 2,000 years ago. I want to hear the word for today. But that's not what Paul, that's not Paul's attitude. Yes, we need the Holy Spirit. Of course we do. Paul was always on about the Holy Spirit. He says, when I came to you, I wanted, wrote to the Corinthians, when I came to you, I um, spoke not with plausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit's power. But what was it he took to the Corinthians not some, primarily, some fancy sort of spiritual you know, demonstration, making them all fall over or fly up in the air or something, but the word of God. The, the primary weapon of the Holy Spirit himself and therefore of the spiritual preacher is the word of God. Hebrews expands on this idea a bit. 
Hebrews 4, verse 12. This is the one book in the New Testament that we really have no um, idea who wrote it. Um, people do dispute some of the others, but we have no idea who wrote Hebrews. I like the tradition it was written by Barnabas, but I have no, absolutely no uh, authority for that, but it just seems like a nice idea. You feel that Barnabas ought to have written something. But... Um, <laughs> Whether we did or not, it is still the word of God and it was uh, written to the Hebrews. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The Roman soldier would want to get his sword into some vital organ, of course, to kill his opponent before the opponent could kill him. Um, but the word of God, it says, is, goes even deeper than the Roman soldier's sword. It does pierce to the heart, but not just the physical heart, but the spiritual heart. It uh, gets down to the bones right inside. And that's what the word of God is for. But how does it do it? Well, it does that by pointing to Jesus. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3, the beginning of the letter of Hebrews, when he, the writer stops, starts by telling us what he's about to write about. It says the following, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He talks there about the word of the Father and the word of the Son, um, who sustains all things by his powerful word. Now, you can argue the philosophy of whether that is in some sense distinct from the word of God, but whether it is or not, it's certainly clear that the word of God, as we have it written down, is there to point us to the Son, to point us to Jesus. That's what the prophets and the other Old Testament writers are on about, and that's what the New Testament is there for. So let's just one more look at one more reference on the, on what the New Testament says about the Scripture, or at least the letters, at least. It would be a fair question to ask, I guess: Are the New Testament writings themselves Scripture? Because Jesus only talks about the Old Testament Scriptures. Um, Hebrews says, "Well, yeah, we have the Old Testament Scriptures, but." Um, God has spoken to us by his Son, does that mean we don't really need the New Testament Scriptures written down? But after all, the Scriptures point to Christ. It's in these New Testament writings that we learn of Christ, so it would be uh, very strange not to regard them as Scripture, wouldn't it? It would seem odd that the Old Testament writings, which t talk us in, in a sense forward in, as a Scripture, 
and yet the writings that actually describe the fulfillment of the promise would not be regarded as scripture. It just wouldn't make any sense. And another thing that I've put these two together, not because they naturally go together, it's just that Peter happens to deal with both these issues. Um, Peter deals with the issue of a, a weapon in untrained hands. Did you read in the news this week, or last week, was it, of a, a young child who accidentally killed a sh shooting instructor? She'd had a, a, an Uzi submachine gun put into her hands, and I think a nine-year-old girl. Very stupid thing to do, and the instructor paid for it with his life. She lost control of it, and then he took a bullet to the head. A weapon in untrained hands can be quite a dangerous thing. But Peter deals with both these issues in this passage here. Just a couple of verses. 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. He's actually talking here about why is it that the Lord hasn't yet returned as he'd promised to do. And he says the following, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. Where did Paul's wisdom come from? It came from God. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, if you read the New Testament, there was at least one occasion in which Peter and Paul disagreed. Paul tells us about that. I think it's in Galatians, is it? Or Colossians, I can't remember, one of the two. And yet the apostle Peter, first of all, he says that Pete, Paul is a dear brother and he clearly states here that Paul's lectures, letters are the wisdom that God gave him and that they are scripture and when he talks about the other scriptures he must surely be referring not just to the Old Testament but to the other New Testament writings, the Gospels and so on and he also gives us that warning that in untrained hands you can twist them to your own destruction And that does happen. Uh, at the Reformation, of course, people talked about the fact that we should read the scriptures for ourselves and that there was a, mat a private judgment, and I think that that's true. You know, we shouldn't just rely on the interpretation of the church. But it is also true that we do have to read them carefully and, and listen to teachers and listen to what... Um, so the whole message of the scripture, the whole counsel God, we need to study the scripture properly. We need to think about it and seek understanding. Otherwise, we can get hold of the wrong end of the rifle, and that's nearly always fatal. We can't just pick out random verses and regard them as God's message to us. I was a little unhappy about, in one sense, having to do that, even going through these things the scripture says about himself. I had to pick verses some extent out of their context you really ought to go back and check that I'm not pulling the wood over your eyes um, check that I'm not just taking a verse out of context and making it mean something to what it really does mean we need to examine the scriptures carefully we need to make sure 
we understand what it is really saying, not just say take some random text and make it mean uh, what we want it to. I had a quote somewhere of some preacher being described as 10,000 thousand are his texts, but all his sermons one. Um, we shouldn't twist the scriptures to what we want it to say. Even if what we wanted to say is, is true, we still shouldn't be forcing the scriptures to say it when they don't. We shouldn't be too ready to assert that our particular hobby horse is the only true and possible interpretation of a particular passage. How much dissent has been caused among Christians about the book of Revelation, for instance, as to what exactly these passages mean and how to uh, read them. Can't we agree that they are difficult? As um, Peter says, many of some of the scriptures are hard to understand. And that, you know, in a sense, our interpretations do have to be slightly tentative. We have to say, well, as far as we can see, this is what the scripture means. And, and more to, most importantly, of course, interpret them with other scriptures, which are perhaps clearer and easier to understand. And to read the whole book, again, not just take a small passage out of its context and say this clearly means that, when it very probably doesn't. And one of the dangers of having a high view of the scripture is that we become fundamentalists in the wrong sense of the term, the bad sense of the term. Of course, it's come to mean a bad word on the TV news nowadays. Fundamentalists are people who don't think for themselves. And it can be like that sometimes. Sometimes we can study, you know, quote the scriptures as an excuse for not thinking for ourselves, for not achieving wisdom, which is what the scriptures tell us they're for, that we should achieve wisdom. <laughs> and we just quote a few, few proof texts and we quote them in an, actual, an old sort of ultra-literal way, remember, forgetting that there are different sorts of literature in the scriptures. And then we go around condemning as a heretic anyone who disagrees on some trivial point. That is not the way to study and interpret the scriptures. It's not how scripture itself tells us to use it. It tells us to seek wisdom. But we should be fundamentalists in the true sense, in the original meaning of the term. It was, the term comes from a book that was written, The Fundamentals, which was to, uh, to defend the word of God against an attack from liberal thinking. And certainly we need to be fundamentalists in that sense, that we regard the scripture as the foundation of our faith. That's what it means, isn't it? fundament is, is the foundation and we should regard the scripture as the foundation of our faith Beca why? because it's the place where we find the saviour and we need to be well drilled in its proper use and just finally as we close I pointed out that the Old Testament finishes with a curse and in a sense, so does the New Testament as well, or at least there's one very near the end of it. <laughs> Revelation 22, verses 18 to 19. John writes, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him 
the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. Text for mathematicians, perhaps you shouldn't uh, add and you shouldn't take away. God, we shouldn't add anything to God's word because if we do, God will add something, the plagues described in the book. And if we take away, then God will take away something even more, his share in the tree of life and the holy city. This curse, of course, could just refer to the book of Revelation, but I think most interpreters take it as referring to the whole of Scripture. The Scripture is now complete. Everything that needs to be said has been said. Now, of course, that's not everything that needs to be said about anything, as I say. Um, as pointed out last week, the Scripture doesn't uh, say much about nuclear physics or computer programming. I don't think it says a lot about biochemistry either, actually. Um, these are things that are worth studying. But everything that needs to be said for salvation has been said. We need to, and these are warnings to listen to the word of God. Adding to it or taking away from it are just different ways, really, of twisting the scriptures to mean something different. And he says, no, don't do that. Listen to it. Study it. Gain wisdom. Think about it. It does tell us all we need to know about the nature of mankind and the perilous state of mankind and more importantly, what God is doing about that perilous state. And above all, it tells us about Jesus Christ. And the New Testament presents us Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is the prophet who declares the words of God to us. Jesus is the priest who makes peace with God so that the law doesn't condemn us. And Jesus is the king who is the lawgiver, the very source of the words. And so we ignore or misuse the scripture at our peril. But if we use it properly, as that reading that uh, Phil gave us earlier from Psalm 119 tells us, it will enable us to rebuild our lives from the inside out. So let's uh, remember and heed those warnings that it gives us to listen to the word of God. Our final hymn points to the same place as the scripture does. <laughs>